I'm Robin Hawkins, and you're listening to Watered Down Women. What thoughts go through your mind on the day you die? When you wake up on that morning and pour a cup of coffee, do you savor its aroma and enjoy its rich, bold flavor? Or does it seem bland and tasteless? Have you ever wondered if our senses gradually shut down in preparation for the event in order to dull death's sting? Or are they on a heightened awareness sort of like the flight-or-fight response that happens when we perceive a sudden attack or a threat to our well-being. Does our heart rate increase and our blood pressure rise as our adrenaline rate moves upward? Or does despair take over and we cower to the nearest corner and retreat like an abused animal? By the same token, what thoughts go through the mind of a murderer while he's concocting a plan to execute his wife. Were his eyes glazed and his actions robotic? Or did his anger erupt from the fiery rage burning inside of him? When Jess Hall approached a neighbor on the evening of Wednesday, January 5th, 1955, and asked to borrow a shotgun, did he give any indication that he was furious with his spouse? and preparing to end her life? Or, and most likely, did he offer the excuse of just needing it to kill a bothersome varmint who was giving him a hard way to go? Even if he offered the latter as his reasoning for needing the gun, the neighbor would have had no way of knowing that Jess was referring to his wife, Eliza. Not long before the tragedy happened, Jess Hall returned to the family after serving a six-month term in a Columbus workhouse for severely beating Eliza. That sentence was one of two terms he served for domestic violence, and in total, he appeared before a judge 16 times in his few years of living in Ohio. Records indicate that he was unemployed at the time of his death and that his family was receiving government relief as its only legal means of income, and that Jess was still on probation for a charge of spousal non-support. At the time, the legal standing of Jess Rowe Hall was of no significance to the residents of Little Kentucky. The news that had the local folks talking, and that had pretty much captured the attention of the entire world, was the details surrounding the bludgeoning death of Marilyn Shepard, wife of Cleveland doctor Sam Shepard. Just a couple of weeks prior to Eliza's death, Dr. Shepard was convicted of killing his wife, and the world was still stunned by the carnival-like atmosphere of the trial and the salacious details 
that had emerged from the testimonies. Marilyn and Dr. Sam Shepard married in an elegant ceremony in Hollywood, California, and then located along the Lake Erie shoreline to join the Shepard family's medical practice in Bay Village, Ohio. Most likely, Mrs. Shepard envisioned a long life of lavish social gatherings accompanied by the soothing sounds of gentle waves hitting against the Lake Erie shoreline that outlined their magnificent home. Despite her family's wealth and opulent lifestyle, death was no respecter of persons. If, like Mrs. Shepard, Eliza had hoped for a better life in an Ohio town with family members nearby and neighbors within earshot, her dream ended with the sound of gunshots. And unlike Marilyn Shepard, Eliza's death notice was barely noteworthy. As a matter of fact, when the killing occurred, that day's paper ran the story, but Eliza's name wasn't even mentioned until paragraph four. Prior to that, she was simply referred to as Mrs. Jess Hall. After its initial story reporting of the murder-suicide, the local newspaper followed up with a next-day article and placed it in the second section on page 13. One might ask what could have possibly stolen the headline away from a local woman's murder in the local newspaper. Ironically, the suicide death of Dr. Sam Shepard's mother was blazoned across the front page of the Mansfield News Journal. Apparently, the mom of an imprisoned doctor with a Lakeshore address was more significant than the six recently orphaned children from Mansfield's North End. According to accounts from neighbors and family members, on the morning of January 6, 1955, Eliza was awakened around 5.30 a.m. by the sound of her husband's thunderous voice. He had arrived home, presumably after a late night of drinking, and began making demands of his wife. Obviously, the details of their conversation will never be known. But the locals said that the sounds of screams and yelling was typical in the Hall household. Did Eliza assume that this was just another day in her turbulent life with Jess? Maybe as the coffee perked, she drifted off into a memory of her second grade teacher who had shown the class a worn burlap satchel containing small brown kernels, explaining that those tiny seeds were actually coffee beans from the Blue Mountain region of South America. Perhaps that day in class, Eliza's seven-year-old imagination pictured a giant hillside capped with royal blue trees and sky-blue grasses, yet wondered why the seeds were brown if the mountain itself was blue. And maybe, just for a moment, Eliza smiled on that morning, thinking back to her own innocent childhood naivete. Threatening words from Jess probably brought her back to reality, and she hurried to meet his demands. In that they had at least four minor children still living at home, 
it's reasonable to assume that Eliza tried to de-escalate Jess's anger and possibly offered to make breakfast for her family. With one daughter barely a teenager, did Eliza appease Jess just long enough to help brush that daughter's hair or to pack a makeshift lunch for each child? In regards to those children, they were seemingly so accustomed to the raging arguments between their parents that they probably figured they would return home to either a passed out father or to their parents' argument continuing just where it had left off. Once the younger children were out the door and making their way to school, the halls were visited by Jess's older daughter, Shirley, who brought along with her the eight-month-old daughter of her sister, Jessie Mae. Think for a moment about the dysfunctionality of this family. If you or I stopped by a family member's house, even if it was that of our parents, how likely would we be to stay in that environment and witness the combativeness between two warring adults and allow a small child to remain in such a violent setting. However, let's not be so quick to judge the daughter's actions. After all, this was her father and the woman she knew as mother who were engaged in the heated battle. Where did her loyalty lie? Maybe she tried to calm both parents and asked them to consider their grandchild who was there observing this violent behavior. Is it possible that Shirley tried to get Eliza to leave or begged her dad to stop with his rampage? Studies show that children who grew up witnessing domestic violence are at a greater risk of living in violent relationships themselves. As they are forming their framework for understanding and controlling behavior, what they witness from the significant adults in their life usually becomes a pattern they follow. Abusive home life isn't something that just happened a long time ago or a trend only among couples from the past. The National Resource Center on Domestic Violence reports that in this current era, one out of every 10 people murdered is by an intimate partner and seven of those 10 murdered are women. Regardless of one's social or economic status, and regardless of the time period in which one lives, the explosive combination of alcohol, anger, hatred, and jealousy can light the fuse that ignites the powder keg that ends a life and destroys a family. And on a bitter, cold January day, in a rundown house on Prior Road, Jess Hall stepped outside and retrieved the shotgun that he had borrowed from a neighbor and strategically placed nearby. Then he re-entered his home and aimed the loaded gun at the face of his bride and pressed it tightly against her cheek. I've tried to imagine what Eliza was thinking at that very second. Did her life flash before her eyes like a fast-forwarded movie, beginning with her very first memory and ending with the realization that her life was now going to end on this wintry morning and on this godforsaken piece of ground? 
Across from her stood the man she had married nearly a quarter of a century earlier, had bore him several children, moved multiple times to stay by his side, tolerated his alcoholism and abuse, and the entirety of her life culminated into this final fatal moment. Unlike the sensationalistic conclusion to the Shepherd family saga, no jury would deliberate on the fate of her killer. Newspaper reporters wouldn't hold vigils outside of the courthouse, and the world wouldn't anxiously await a verdict. Instead, Eliza would plead perilously. Her stepdaughter would move toward her father and beg desperately for him to put down the gun and a wide-eyed child would look on innocently as Jess heartlessly and defiantly told his daughter no, and at which time she grabbed the child and ran out the door. In what probably seemed like an instant to Shirley, might have felt like a lifetime to Eliza, because as soon as the daughter and granddaughter cleared the doorway, Jess Rowe Hall, brutally and barbarically put the gun against Eliza's face and pulled the trigger, sending his sorrowful wife into eternity. And true to his controlling and possessive nature, he placed the shotgun under his own chin and decided he would not allow her to go alone. Been washed down the street. A fool's paradise, hoping to be free. Found a new home in the cemetery. Grab a shovel and join me each Monday as we dig a little deeper and uncover the tragedies of watered down women. From above, passionate promises made with each breath, deceptive affection ended in death, girl shattered.